Jean and I have a friend called Pat, who some few years ago went to Israel as one of a team of Quaker peacemakers, you may have heard about them, who monitor situations between the Israeli soldiers and Palestinians and report and generally try to spread peace. But sadly, what Pat experienced there in Hebron has caused her to say to us now that she finds it very difficult to read the Old Testament. Now, you may not have had the experience that our friend Pat had, but you may be sympathising with her and say, yes, I find it difficult to read the Old Testament too. What bothers us is, of course, not the beautiful parts, Psalm 23, Isaiah 53, and the, the parts that comfort us. Praise God for those. But what bothers us are the battles, the bloodthirstiness with which Israel's enemies are regarded, and the apparent indifference of the biblical writers to the sufferings of whole communities, women and children included, who were wiped out. Ah, yes, you may say to me. But those are the more ancient parts of the Old Testament. Later, there evolved a more compassionate understanding of Israel's calling, as reflected in the prophecies of writers like Isaiah and Jeremiah. But the problem we have this morning in looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that it is precisely the more ancient and horrifying parts of the Old Testament that the Apostle Paul uses in warning the Corinthian Christians. Paul's illustrations are taken mainly from the book of Numbers, which describes events that happened about 1200 BC, and he wants, us to draw, he wants to draw to our attention these lessons from Israel's history. Death by plague as punishment for sexual immorality. A lingering death by venomous snakes for trying God's patience. These things occurred as examples for us, says Paul. Do not buy idolaters. Do not engage in pagan revelry. Don't commit sexual immorality because in one day 23,000 of them were died. What's it all about? What are we to make of this? The successors of the Corinthian Christians meeting 20 centuries later but with much of the same experience, with so much in common with these Christians meeting in that ancient Greek city of Corinth. Well, let's sketch in the background. Let's take an overview. The books of Exodus and Numbers describe a thrilling story. You have to admit, if you take an overview, if you read through quickly, it's a thrilling story of how God called a people out of slavery in Egypt. They were nobodies. They were insignificant. They didn't count for tuppence on the world stage. They didn't even have their freedom. They were slaves. And he called these people to be what the Old Testament describes as God's treasured possession. A special people. 
people for whom he would be in their midst. People whose lives would display all the attributes of the one holy God. He gave them laws to keep. Not because he was a killjoy, but he gave them laws to keep so that their lives would be lived along lines that would show something of the purity and holiness of God. Most famous of these, of course, are the Ten Commandments. But these laws were all summed up in the commandment to love the Lord and their God with all their heart, with all their mind, and with all their strength. And God led them out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt, and guided them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he led them into the promised land where they would be able to do something they could never do in Egypt, build a place of worship to worship the one true God, the creator of the world. And to give him thanks for this wonderful salvation, this deliverance from slavery and the bringing into a fruitful promised land. But as we know, the book of Numbers in particular is a sorry tale. A story of how so soon the Israelites forgot God's kindness. They grumbled. They grumbled about the food. Nothing new, is there? Grumbled about the food. They wished they were back in Egypt, all the luscious fruits of Egypt, forgetting that they were in slavery there. They grumbled about Moses, their leader. They even grumbled about God, and in the most awful incident, they built their own God to worship, a golden calf. And they broke God's laws concerning sexual morality, which were to enable them to experience God's best in human relationships. And God was dismayed. God was appalled at the way these people were behaving. And he was angry. And the people of Israel saw the disasters that befell them as God's punishment. And in their better moments, they realized that they had deserved God's anger. They had deserved the punishments that fell upon them. But God was faithful. Hallelujah. God was faithful. He kept his promise. Despite the fact that the first generation died in the wilderness, he kept his promise to lead them into the promised land. And he enabled them to build that temple in Jerusalem, the center of the worship of the one true God. But even then, even then, life wasn't perfect. In the promised land, there was disobedience, there was idolatry, there was immorality. There was defeat by enemies because they didn't trust in God's protection and it led to captivity in Babylon. Then by God's grace, they got a fresh start in their own land, but really never experiencing the full measure of all the blessing that God wanted to pour upon them. Until one day, 
In a pivotal event which divided history in two, God chose to enter this world. Help me take it in, we've been singing. Have we really appreciated how amazing this was, that God chose to enter this world, not as one might expect, as a God of judgment, but as a helpless baby who grew to adulthood in an insignificant little village called Nazareth, the sort of place that people sneered at. Who, when he grew up, showed by his life and teaching what God is truly like. A God of love and compassion, a God of inclusiveness, a God who welcomes sinners. But sadly, as we all know, the saviour of the world sent by God was rejected by the people to whom he came. He was crucified as a common criminal. Praise God, he rose again to be the saviour, not just this time of one nation, but to be the saviour of all of whatever their background, whatever their ethnic identity, whatever their education, to be the saviour of all who would look to Jesus Christ and trust in him. And the Apostle Paul, if we take a step back from this passage and don't get tied up in the details, the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10, can't you see you Christians there in Corinth, the parallel between you and those ancient Jews, they were an insignificant body of nobodies. So were you. You remember chapters 1 and 2 of this letter that we read through a few weeks ago? Not many of you were noble, he says. Not many of you were wise, but God chose the foolish, the insignificant, the things that are nothing to confound the wise people of this world. God chose you, an insignificant bunch of nobodies in Corinth, and has granted you this wonderful deliverance, this wonderful salvation. A deliverance from all the pagan culture around you and a revelation of the wonder of the one true God. Just like those ancient Israelites, God's purpose there in Corinth is to use you to show to the surrounding people something of the wonder of God's salvation, of the purity of a holy God. And just like those ancient Israelites, you're called to be one family. Don't know if you noticed in the reading, in those first few verses, the number of times the word all appears. They were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Just like you, you're called to unity, Paul is saying. to submerge all your petty differences and difficulties that arise when people of different backgrounds, different races, different educational levels meet together. You're to submerge all those in this wonderful love that God is wanting to pour out in your hearts. And you've been delivered 
from all these things, just as the ancient Israelites were. You've been delivered from sexual immorality, from idolatry, all the pagan worship that surrounded you in the ancient world. And they, just like you Christians in Corinth, were called to be united in your love for God and your love for one another. And yet Paul says, I'm dismayed. I'm appalled at the way you're behaving. I hear that in the church in Corinth there are divisions. I hear that some of you are still worshipping idols, going to idols' temples. I hear that some of you have fallen into grave sexual sin. I hear that even at the Lord's table there are divisions. There's this terrible lack of unity. You're like little children, he says. He says, you're just like those ancient Israelites. For all God's kindness to you, for all this wonderful salvation, this cost of your salvation that Christ died on the cross for you, you're behaving as though none of this was important. You're still going your old ways. All God's kindness to you, you're throwing back in his face and treating as something of no account, just like those ancient Israelites do. No wonder God was angry with them. No wonder God despaired of them. You in Corinth are in danger of doing the same thing to the God who saved you. But look, says Paul, God is faithful. God is faithful. He does not abandon his purposes for the church which he wants to create, for the church that he wants to be a saving light in the world, shining like lights in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Jerusalem, in Rome, in Linfield. God is faithful. And Paul is not saying to the Corinthian Christians that you're going to die of plague or snake bites or anything like that. Paul did not believe that. Christ died for our sins is the message that comes through very loudly later in this letter. Christ took upon himself all our shortcomings, all our failings. Oh, help me take it in, we sang. All our sins were on him laid. All our disobedience, all our immorality, all our idolatry, all our testing of God's patience, all our sins have been laid on Jesus. And Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, there is a way of escape. You are new creations, no more in condemnation. There is a way of escape, and it's the way that's spelt out throughout this letter. That the punishment we deserve for falling so far short of God's purposes has been laid on Jesus Christ. Because the Christian life is a way of humility. A couple of weeks ago, we read in chapter 8, these wonderful words that I'll quote from the New Living Translation. While knowledge may make us feel important, it's love that really builds up the church. While knowledge may make us feel important, it's love that really builds up the church. 
And that's why we have in this letter to the Corinthian church that wonderful hymn of praise to love that we will come to in a few weeks' time when we come to chapter 13. Love never fails, says Paul. And God is not now a God waiting to drop a ton of bricks on our head if we disobey him. God is a gracious God, God is a faithful God, who even in your disobedience, dear Corinthians, Paul is saying, God wants you to draw near to him, to allow his love to so fill your fellowship, so that you will be what God intended you to be, a shining beacon of light in that pagan, idolatrous, immoral city of Corinth. And he's saying the same thing to us. You may feel that you've fallen short of God's purposes. You may even feel that you're not good enough to be a Christian. The message of the whole of the New Testament is you don't have to be good enough. You have to trust in Jesus Christ, who for the love that he has for us laid down his life, was crucified, was buried, and rose again. And the message God wants you to carry with you during this week, with all that this week is going to bring for you, its trials, its anxieties, its heartache, its challenges, God is going to want you to carry into this week the thought that the God you serve is the God whose name is love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God wants to make you and wants to make our church a blessing to this village. He wants you to know that whatever happens during this week, he is the faithful one, the unchanging one, our rock of peace. A God who wants us, insignificant as we may think ourselves to be, a God who wants us to be a light to our community, living a vibrant witness to the fact that God forgives, makes new creatures, and can use his church to spread his message of salvation.